This past Monday was our staff Christmas party. Now, one of the things about our staff Christmas parties, I enjoy it every year. And part of the reason I enjoy it is because we have such good food. Now, if you've eaten at anything that our church staff is responsible for preparing, you know what I'm talking about. God has gifted Calvary with people who are skilled in the culinary arts. And so anytime there's a meal coming up that I'm going to eat, that somebody on our staff is going to have prepared from our kitchen staff, I'm excited for that. And of course, the Christmas party, it's, uh, it's taken up even another level. And so I was glad when it was coming. Now, I'm not the most prepared person of all time. And so I didn't realize until Monday morning this week when I got in that it was this Monday. Now, that was actually a problem. Because Mondays are normally the day that I fast and pray. Okay, fast <laughs> uh, and pray. Now, our Christmas party's not normally on a Monday. In fact, I can't remember if it's ever been on a Monday since I've been here. But this year it was on a Monday, and when I come in and I'm sort of looking through the day, I think, oh no, the Christmas party is this Monday, and I have committed to the Lord that I will fast and pray every Monday, and I do that for the services. Because it's more important to me that God show up here and be present with us on Sunday then uh, that Monday I get to have a great time and experience uh, eating and those sorts of things. And so it's a commitment that I made to the Lord. But here I am looking at this staff Christmas party thinking, well, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just skip the Christmas party? Go on with the plan as normal, stay in my office, fast and pray? Am I supposed to go to the Christmas party? Somehow in the midst of all this food, not eat anything <laughs> and find some other time to pray? Or am I supposed to simply just go celebrate, enjoy God's provision, and arrange a different time in my schedule for the week to pray for the morning services? Now, I know that you have been through choices like this or face experiences like this. Perhaps you've been convicted recently about uh, the way you're spending God's money and you have felt compelled from the Lord uh, to set up a very strict budget that you want to keep to. You feel like that's being a good steward of God's money. And so you've laid out categories of which you're going to spend money and you've been very faithful to keep that. But imagine that this week, one of the friends that you have been praying for to come to faith actually accepts Christ as Lord and you think, I want to take her out and celebrate. I just, I want to buy her a great dinner and just rejoice with her that God has done this. But you go to your budget and you look in the line item for this month and there is zero dollars in the budget to do that. What do you do? You've made this commitment. You want to be faithful. You want to be disciplined. You're doing it not just for fiscal responsibility. You feel like it's the right thing before the Lord to do. What do you do? Do you simply pay the money and go out to dinner and celebrate? Or do you stick with what the budget says you're supposed to be doing this month? Maybe you're on the board of a Christian school. And you've been very supportive and very vocal about the value of Christian education. You've told your friends and your family and all the people around you, look, this is important. This is a way in which God can bless children. And you've been very vocal about that. But what if your middle child comes to you and begs you to let them go to a public school? What are you going to do? Are you going to stick with what you've been saying for so many years where you have put all of this emphasis and time? Or are you going to allow that child to go to a public school? Suppose you own a small business and you have a long-standing policy 
of not hiring those with criminal backgrounds. It simply seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like the right way to protect the employees that work there and the reputation of the company. And you have a written policy that you're not going to be hiring anybody who has a criminal background. But this week, you got a call from a pastor here at Calvary Church who knows someone getting out of prison and is calling and asking you, can you give them work? Can you give them a second chance? They need some help here. What do you do? You have a written policy. Everybody that works for you knows we're not going to do this kind of stuff. What do you do? Or imagine that you're in a Sunday school class here at Calvary and you're looking for a new teacher. And the people in your class have suggested a person who you readily admit is a gifted teacher and God's spirit does seem to work through this person when they teach. But you also know that this person some years past was at a point in their Christian life not walking with the Lord and during that time made some decisions in which they were unfaithful to their family responsibilities and requirements. And you've always been a person who believed that faithfulness to responsibilities to family precedes leadership in the church. But you do admit the Spirit is working through this person. What do you do? Do you go along with the rest of the Sunday school class and say, yes, this person should be our teacher? Or do you stay with what you've always thought and believed, that you have to be faithful to the vows that we've made before God with regard to our family if we're going to be leaders in God's church? Well, this Monday morning, as I'm trying to think through my decision... I open up the Bible, the first Samuel 21, and lo and behold, I'm reading the answer to my question. And I want to share that answer with you, not just because I want you to know what happened to me, but because I know that all of us are faced with these kinds of messy decisions, that life does not always proceed according to the way that we think it ought to, and sometimes we're faced with these difficult choices. How do we make them? Even more than that, I think that as we look in our passage today in first Samuel 21, we're going to see another glimpse at what it looks like to have an undivided heart for God as we face these kinds of decisions in life. So take your Bible, if you will, and turn to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21, if you need a Bible, there should be one in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat. In those Bibles, it's page 207. 207. The story that we're covering is from 1 Samuel 21 and 22. I already alluded to some of the things that happened in 1 Samuel 22 at the beginning of the service. We're not going to explicitly look at that. We'll just simply be referencing that. But we're in 1 Samuel 21. Let me bring you up to speed of where we are in the book of 1 Samuel. At this point, David has been anointed by God to be the king of Israel. He is the true king of Israel, but Saul is still functioning as the king. God has chosen David, but Saul is still functioning as the king, and God is allowing him to function as the king of Israel. God has placed David in Saul's court so that David might get the experiences that he needs in order to be king in the future, and God has blessed David. David has been promoted to be the captain of Saul's guard. He also has been given Saul's daughter in marriage and is the king's son-in-law. But as we talked about last week, because God's spirit had left Saul and gone to David, Saul became jealous of David and his success and that God was blessing everything that he did. And Saul sought to kill David. With the help of Saul's son, Jonathan, David's best friend, David is able to escape from Saul's uh, control. 
and he's on the run. And the first place that David goes when he's running from Saul is the first place we might expect him to go, to the religious center of the nation of Israel. Now at this point, it's a village called Nob. That's where the tabernacle is. That's where the priests are. Now you may not have heard of Nob. It's not a very famous place. And the reason is, is up until this point, the religious hub of Israel was Shiloh. That was where the tabernacle was. That's where the priests were. But Shiloh was captured by the Philistines. And so for a short period of time, the center of Israel's religious life moved to the village of Nob. After David becomes king, he will move it to Jerusalem. So whereas we may be familiar with Shiloh and Jerusalem, Nob is that place, but just during this intermediate period. Well, we pick up the story in chapter 21, verse number 1. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doag the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. Now the most important feature of this story is that David is being given bread that he's not allowed to eat. It's against the law for him to eat this bread. The Mosaic law is very clear. This is what the priest means when he says, I don't have ordinary bread here. He doesn't mean I don't have any white bread. What he means is, I don't have any bread that you're allowed to eat. This bread that was used in the worship of God was very specifically by the Mosaic law set aside and was only for the priests to eat. So here is David faced with a choice to break God's rules and eat something that he wasn't supposed to eat. So on Monday, I'm reading this story about David and I'm thinking about my situation where I'm thinking about breaking this commitment, this rule, and eating something on a day that I had set aside for worship, prayer, and fasting from God. Now, as I'm studying this passage... I feel like God is answering my question, but in order to understand what's going on in this passage, we need to realize that, as I've told you in the past, one of the major ways to get what's going on in 1 Samuel is by comparing and contrasting major characters. That oftentimes, in any given story, there will be two characters who the truth of what the passage is about comes out as you compare and contrast them to one another. So, for example, when we talked about Hannah... We saw Hannah against the contrast of Eli. 
when we looked at Samuel, it was Samuel against the contrast of Eli. Samuel versus Israel in one of the passages. Saul versus Jonathan. Saul versus David. Well, here in this passage, there are two main characters that are being compared and contrasted with one another. Besides Ahimelech the priest, it's David and Doeg the Edomite. Now, there's a couple of reasons why we can see that these are parallel characters. The first is, what's Doeg's occupation? He's a shepherd. What was David's occupation before he went to work for Saul? He was a shepherd. Who does Doeg work for? Saul. He's part of Saul's sort of cabinet. He's over the office of shepherding. And so he's part of that sort of inner circle. Until this moment, who did David work for? Saul. He was the captain of Saul's guard, so he too was part of Saul's cabinet. That's why David and Doag know each other. That's why they recognize each other in the story. They were both part of that inner circle. There's another connection between them, although this one's a contrast. I told you at the beginning of the service that Doag is a very ominous mention of him here because David is trying to hide from Saul. Yet here's someone from Saul's inner circle that sees him and knows him and recognizes him. We find out in chapter 22 that Doag goes and rats out David to Saul. Saul is furious and so he summons Ahimelech the priest and all of the people from Nob, all of the priests of Nob. When they come before Saul, Saul who's under the control of Satan, orders the execution of every single one of them. None of his guards in their right mind would ever do something like that. And so they all refuse to obey. But Doag, he's got no fear of doing that. He slaughters them all. Not only the priests, but also their wives and children. Except for one priest. That priest escapes. And he goes to find refuge with David. And so in Doag, we see the murderer of God's people. And in David, we see the protector of God's people. So these two characters are being compared and contrasted here in this passage. And if we're going to understand what God is saying to us from this passage, we need to understand it in light of these two characters and how they play off of each other. And here's the important question to ask of both of these characters. The question that opens up what this passage is about. And the question is this. What are David and Doag doing at Nob? Why are they there? Well, David is there because he's running to God. When Saul is chasing him, it's interesting that David thinks the first place I've got to get is to God. He doesn't go back to Bethlehem. That's interesting. He doesn't go back to his hometown. Surely he would have found a warm welcome there. David needs three things. He needs food, he needs a weapon, and he needs instructions from the Lord. But it's interesting he doesn't go home to get those. Nor does he run in the opposite direction from Saul. He could have gone the opposite direction as fast and as far as he, as he could have gone. That's not what he does. David runs to the Lord. He thinks, who's my help in this situation? <clears throat> That's an undivided heart for God. And so David is at Nob because he is seeking the Lord. But the question is, why is Doag at Nob? What's he doing there? I mean, he's there by himself. 
Now, this is all the more striking because remember, Nob is the religious center for the Israelites. But Doeg is not an Israelite. He's an Edomite. What's he doing at Israel's religious center? It's not like Nob is some big town that you would be there on other business. The only reason you went to Nob is if you're there to see the, the priests or to be near the tabernacle. So why is this Edomite foreigner at Nob? Well, it's certainly not because he has any affinity for Yahweh or his priests. I mean, it's the same guy who's going to slaughter all of them. Nobody who's a believer in God could ever do what Doeg did. Nobody who has any respect for the priesthood could ever do what Doeg did. So he's not there because he has respect for the priesthood. Or he has respect for Yahweh. So what is he doing there? Well, the answer comes in verse number 7. Notice what it says. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, and here's the key phrase, detained before the Lord. Detained before the Lord. It doesn't say that he was there to worship the Lord. It doesn't say that he was there to inquire of the Lord. It doesn't say that he was there to learn about the Lord. He was detained before the Lord. Now that's a strange word to use in a worship context. He's stuck in Nob. He can't leave. Well, why not? Well, this is the only time in the Hebrew Bible that this word is used in a worship context whatsoever. It's not normally a worship word. It's not normally used in this kind of way. But in post-biblical Hebrew, interestingly enough, this word detained is used for following the religious regulations of Judaism. That when you're following the rules, oftentimes this verb is used, that on the Sabbath you are detained from doing certain things. That when you go to the temple and you have to wait, you are detained before the Lord. That's why Doag is in Nob. You see, he's an Edomite. He's not a believer in Yahweh. But somehow he's gotten through his mind that if he's going to advance in Saul's kingdom, he's got to go to church. That nobody is going to move up the ranks without at least going through the outward motions of religion, the Israelite religion. You see, Doeg is from a conquered people. And it seems that when the Israelites conquered the Edomites, Doeg saw an opportunity to start working for Saul. He started to work for Saul and he's worked his way up to chief shepherd. And he thinks to himself, I'm not going any further in this kingdom unless I go through the rules. And so what he's doing in Nob is he's following the rules. The Israelite religion says there's a certain number of times you have to appear before the priest. We don't know exactly why he's here, if it's ritual uncleanness or what it was. But Doeg is there not because he believes, but because he's following the rules. That's why he's stuck there. You can see him looking at his watch going, how many more days until I can get back to what I really want to do? I've got to be here to fulfill whatever requirement is he needs to fulfill. And then he wants to get back to what he really wants to be doing. 
So now here's the really, really interesting thing about the contrast. Doag, who is the obedient one, is the villain in the story. David, who is disobeying God, is the hero of the story. Do you see that? Doeg is following all the rules of religion. He's doing exactly what's required of him. Down to the minute, he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. Yet his heart couldn't be further from the Lord. David, who at this moment is violating the Mosaic law, he's breaking the commands of God. Yet he has an undivided heart for the Lord. This is Jesus' exact point in Matthew chapter 12. It says in that passage, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now notice, Jesus is not going to contradict the Pharisees on this point. He's not going to say, no, 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 it's legal. He doesn't make that argument. He does not argue that what they're doing is legal. Look what he does say. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread. Look, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent. I told you that one who is greater than the temple is here. If you had known what the words, these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Doag is a Pharisee. David is a disciple. Jesus is making the same radical point that 1 Samuel 21 is making. The Pharisees are honoring Jesus with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They are the ones who obey all the rules of religion, yet God is not pleased with them. The disciples are the ones who are breaking the rules, yet they are following wholeheartedly after God. Now before we leave, Doeg and David, one more observation about the contrast between the two of them. And that has to do with how their stories turn out. Now in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, we're not told what happens to Doeg. He's a brutal murderer. He's the epitome of evil under the control of Satan. But we're not told what his future is. In fact, Doeg is never mentioned again in 1 and 2 Samuel. But there is another passage of scripture that gives us a clue as to the future of Doag and of David. And I want you to turn over there. It's Psalm 52. Psalm 52. It's page 405. Psalm 52. Most of the psalms we have were written by David, this exact person that we're talking about. Some of them have an inscription attached to them, 
which tell us most likely when they were written and into what uh, situation they were written. Notice the inscription for Psalm 52. For the director of music, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. This is the psalm David wrote on the, situ- on the day that we are looking at. 1 Samuel 21 and 22, it's like David got done at the end of the day and wrote in his journal. This is what he wrote. Look at verse number five. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at him saying, here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. That's about Doeg. And what is Doeg's future? Even though he obeys all the rules of the religion, everlasting destruction because his heart is far from God. But David then shifts from Doeg to himself. Look in verse number eight. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. See, what David is doing is he's experiencing joy. Joy. Here's the crazy thing is the person who's disobeying the rule or who is obeying the rules gets destruction. The person disobeying the rules is receiving joy. And this is Jesus's point in Matthew chapter 12. The amazing thing is, is the reason why David is rejoicing is because when he's on the run from Saul, he gets to Nob and the reason he rejoices is what he finds at Nob is not a set of rules, but a living God there to meet him. That's why he's overjoyed. It's because the person waiting for him in the midst of his crisis is not a bunch of legalistic regulations, but a God who sees his situation and gives him the bread of his presence. Well, on Monday, I'm reading through this and I'm thinking, God's telling me I'm supposed to go eat. (laughs) I felt the Spirit saying, Go, celebrate, eat, enjoy in the communion of saints. And you know what? I went and I ate. (laughs) And it was good. But it was not just good because I was hungry. (laughs) And it's not just good because the people who prepare the food did a great job. It was good because I was rejoicing that I don't serve a God of laws, but a God of the spirit. I was rejoicing that the God in heaven, who's got all sorts of things going on, was concerned enough about me to say, look, I want you to enjoy this. Go, I hear your commitment. I see your commitment. I'm glad for your commitment. I honor that commitment. But now go, eat, enjoy. And that filled me with joy. I felt like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God instead of being drained and dragged down by legalistic rules and regulations and being forced to obey every jot and tittle. I felt like the living God of the universe showed up in my office and said, have a great time. 
Go enjoy yourself. This is from me to you. And so if this week your friend does come to Christ and there's no budget money to take her out to eat, take her out to eat and celebrate the goodness of God and rejoice that we don't serve a God of legalistic fiscal responsibility. Instead, we serve a God who is generous and kind and full of all grace for us. If this week you feel compelled to hire that person, even though you have a policy not to hire people with criminal backgrounds, but the Spirit is leading you to do it, rejoice. Rejoice that even though policies and procedures, look, those are good things. Committing to fast and pray is a good thing. But rejoice that even in the midst of policy and procedures, that's not ultimately what we serve. We serve a living God who's bigger than any law, any rule, any policy, any procedure. If you decide to send your kid to a public school, your middle child, rejoice that you and I are not bound by other people's expectations for what we do. We're not even bound by our own expectations of ourselves. We serve a living God who sometimes says to us, Yes, I know the patterns. I know the expectations. I know what normally I want you to do. But in this case, I've got something else for you. And if you're part of that Sunday school class and the Spirit leads that class to call that person to be a teacher, rejoice that we serve a God who's forgiving, a God who's gracious. It is a good principle that faithfulness to family is a prerequisite to being a leader in God's church. That's a great principle. But ultimately, we don't serve a principle. We serve a God, a God who is kind and good and does sometimes step in and say, yes, I hear that principle. Yes, I affirm that. Yes, that's good, but not right now. And rejoice. Be filled with joy. After all, that's what the gospel's all about, isn't it? Isn't this what we say to people? It's not about rules, it's about a relationship. You know what? That's actually true. It's not about the rules, it's about a relationship. That's what David is being reminded of at Nob. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 12. That's what I remembered on Monday. It's not about the rules. Look, rules are good, they're important. God said many things He wants us to do. But it's dangerous to think that the rules are what the essence of this thing is about. And you know what? God occasionally gives us reminders. It's not the rules. It's the relationship. Now look, I'm not saying, hey, go out and do whatever you feel like doing. (laughs) Steal, lie, cheat, do whatever you want. I am not saying that. The Bible is very clear. We are not to use our freedom to indulge our sinful natures, that we are not to transgress on God's holy nature simply because we have freedom. But the Bible is also very clear. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free, no longer to be subject to a yoke of slavery. And that God sometimes reminds us, look, It's not the policies, it's not the procedures, it's not the laws, it's not the rules, it's not the expectations, it's not the patterns, it's not the commitments, it's me. I mean, after all, we are lighting the candle of joy at Advent. And what is Advent except the celebration that in our time of greatest need, 
God did not send us a rule book. In our time of greatest need, God did not send us a manual of policies and procedures. In our greatest need, God did not send us a set of legalistic regulations. In the moment of our greatest need, God sent himself that we might have a relationship with him. And that's why we light the candle of joy. What good would it be if it was just a bunch of rules? What good would it be if God was only pleased with us if we dotted every I and crossed every T and did everything exactly the way other people expect us to do it? The joy in Christ is that he's Lord over the Sabbath. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And Jesus is Lord over all. And so this morning we rejoice. We rejoice in a living, personal God who actually comes and invites us to enjoy his presence. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. You are good. God, we admit that all of us have tendencies towards legalism. We all want to default to the rules and the regulations. We all want to control situations through policies and procedures. Lord God, we all want to, to, to be bound in this way, but God, you have set us free. And Lord, I pray that this Sunday that we might rejoice in the freedom that we have in Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you for showing up on Monday and speaking so clearly. Thank you, Lord God, for talking to so many people in this room in so many different ways that there's so many exceptional situations. God, we praise you. You are a living God. You are near to us. Lord, I pray for those right now who don't know that freedom in you, who don't know, who think it's about simply obeying rules. God, please come and introduce yourself to them. Let them know the joy that David experienced. Let them know the joy that we experience in meeting you, the living and risen Lord of the universe. We love you and we thank you. Amen.